thank you for having me. I've been in Portland for about 44 minutes. It's been fantastic so far. Uh, this is an extraordinarily beautiful city. I love it. This is an extraordinarily uh, beautiful venue. It seems a bit more holy than I'm accustomed to. Uh, I grew up a devout Catholic as a youth, and in Catholicism you taught about the difference between the sacred and the profane, and I'm very happy to serve as a one-person example uh, of that gap right now. Um, is this better? Is this good? I can't really adjust that. I'm just going to talk the way I talk. I see thumbs up. Fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Timothy Faust. I'm a socialist. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America, and I'm here to talk about single-payer, Medicare for all. I've been driving across the U.S. talking to folks about health care and health care inequity. I think after this talk we'll do a Q&A, and I would love to A any and all your cues. But I want y'all to help me in A one of my cues, right? Because I'll say this in a minute, but I really want and I really need to understand health injustice from the ground up. And so your stories and anecdotes and testimonials are essential to me. Let's do some disclosures real quick. Right now, for a very temporary period of time, I am currently an employee, a computer boy, for an insurance company. Obviously, nothing I say represents them or vice versa. This is just my atonement for participating in capitalism. Uh, and if that bothers you, fantastic. It bothers me too. I'm quitting in three weeks. And then it's finally all behind me. Also, in the uh, neighborhood of grievances, I have one of America's worst cases of dry mouth. So I've got a big old cup of water. And if I gulp from it really dramatically, just please play along with it. All right, that seems fun. Let's talk about healthcare. I said earlier that I, uh, that I want your stories. That's because healthcare is local. Health disparity is local, right? There's a world of difference between, say, uh, health needs in North Brooklyn and South Brooklyn, or Boston and Birmingham, Alabama, Los Angeles and Little Rock, Eugene and here. And so I want and I need to know more. I've traveled up and down America, I think this is my 34th or 35th state, to understand health inequity in the ground, to understand not just from papers and from articles how healthcare needs manifest, but with my eyes and with my heart. And unfortunately, throughout it all, I've seen so much suffering. I've been welcomed into families who have been thrust into inescapable debt because of complications from pregnancy. I've met the children whose birth caused that debt, who were born into that debt and who will carry it all their life. I sat with widows and widowers, people who watched those whom they love writhe in agony and out of love spent everything they had in an attempt to ameliorate that agony and who failed, or who were failed, and now carry themselves in both heartbreak and poverty. I've met folks who were born into bodies that suffered. I've wept before them as they share with me the depth of the dehumanization forced upon them, whose daily existence is a constant blaring reminder that they are not wanted, and who are forced to make an occupation of begging over and over again for basic help. And I've visited wealthy hospital campuses for wealthy hospital patients, virtual islands in the middle of their cities, and I've visited the neighborhoods, mostly neighborhoods of color around them, systematically drained of capital and labor in a dance reminiscent of colonialism. People who, too poor for the hospital, in fact, immiserated by the hospital, suffer and die much, much sooner than people in wealthier neighborhoods, even a few miles away. And I listened with white knuckles to people, elected people, who have been given the chance to assist those who need them, the opportunity to ease the burdens of their constituents, but have looked at this opportunity and said no. With time and time again, abdicated their responsibility and privileged their own convenience or their own financial reward over a simple moral duty. And over time, I've felt my own body betray me. I've looked at myself in the mirror and seen my own oncoming crisis, and I've paced 
miles and miles around my city block, fearing the decay of my own temporary able-bodiedness and the wave of punishments, punishments for the sin of being sick in which I inevitably am going to drown. Here are the contours of the world American health finance has given us. One, America spends more money than any other country in the world on healthcare, almost twice as much per capita as the next highest spender, but cares little to nothing about community health, caring little about population health, caring little about that which cannot be packaged and sold. Two, 75% of our spending goes to treat chronic conditions that are preventable, yet nobody footing the bills has really tried to prevent them. Three, our system of for-profit private insurers literally takes money from poor people and gives it to the wealthy. It is negatively redistributive. In 2014, it pushed 20 million people into poverty, or from poverty, into extreme poverty. But it does not do justice to the people I've met to simply pornographize their suffering. It is insufficient to simply recite a litany of human pain. I am here to honor those who have shared with me their suffering and the long, long hope that we, together, can build the better world in which nobody needs suffer as they have. I can't give you a quick fix because there is none. There is no technical magic by which we overnight destroy this hateful machine. But I hope I can offer you a vision, an aspiration, understanding of the tools by which we, together, build that better world. So if you permit me, I want to talk about three things. What we have, what we want, and what comes next. I want to talk about the overwhelming and numbing brutality of for-profit healthcare. I want to talk about the relatively benign structural changes that we demand instead. And then I want to talk about something bigger, that broader vision of that better world, the moral compulsion of health justice. Does that sound good? Cool. So I want to start off by confirming something you already know, something you probably feel in your bones, which is that you are being made to suffer. You are being exploited. And the method by which you're being exploited, or the severity, or the complexity, or the artfulness of the cover-up varies from person to person, but fundamentally we have created a world in which you are made sick and then punished for being sick so that somebody else can profit. Let's talk about why. Now, by and large, the costs of receiving healthcare are much, much more than any individual person can afford by themselves. But in a given year, not a lot of folks need a lot of healthcare spending. In a given year, 50% of all medical costs come from 5% of the population. 80% of costs come from 20% of the population. And these are fungible populations they move around. Maybe some years you give birth to a child, or you get into a car accident, or suffer trauma, uh, and some other years you don't. So costs bounce around, but when they hit you, they hit you pretty hard. And so if we made everybody pay for all their own healthcare costs out of pocket, eventually millions upon millions of people would go into crushing debt or medical bankruptcy. That's not a guess, that's history, because out-of-pocket spending used to be the only way we paid for healthcare costs. And it wasn't until a bunch of doctors, a bunch of nurses, a bunch of unionists, and a bunch of socialists insisted that letting folks go into poverty because of illness was immoral that we shifted to a new pair model, and that's the model of insurance. Now, insurers are organizations, or in the U.S., often companies, that receive revenue by charging you monthly premiums. When someone gets sick, insurers spend a portion of the costs they collect for everybody to pay off some of those healthcare costs, plus keep a profit for themselves. And so the more revenue an insurer receives from customers, or realistically, the more subsidy it receives from public money, the wider those costs are spread, and generally, the lower the insurer's per person costs. This idea is called a risk pool. 
But if an insurer has too few healthy people, or too many sick people, or too many folks who need medical spending, for example, if they get just one unexpected person with hemophilia whose care can cost up to a million dollars a year, its per-person costs really increase. And so to compensate, increases premiums. But folks that can't afford those premiums just drop out. Unless, of course, they're sick and they can't afford not to afford those premiums, they stay on board, so per-person costs go up even higher, and so do premiums. It's a very vicious, stupid cycle. It's a big Ouroboros of misery. Because what an insurer wants is as large and as healthy, or non-needy, risk pool as possible. Or wants to find ways to kick out sick customers, or coerce them into leaving. Maybe it drops coverage for the drugs that the sickest patients need, or cuts off access to the providers or facilities that are used by the sickest patients. Because the task of an insurance company, at the end of the day, is just to make sick people, as much as it can, somebody else's problem. That's what we say, what we, that's what we mean, we simply live in a world in which healthcare is a commodity, right? Because really, the future's on your heart, and the future's on your lungs, and your chance of getting diabetes, and whether or not your Mima's glaucoma gets better or worse before she goes on Medicare, are fiddled with, and speculated about, and bought and sold for profit by private companies. This fragmented, commodified healthcare model views healthcare as a transaction between corporations instead of a relationship between a person, their body, their community, and their doctors. That's perverted. We've just mistaken the profit motives of companies for healthcare. And over time, we've delegated the responsibility of providing insurance to employers. But that's hosed too, because that results in the status quo of total employer domination which your access to things like contraception or blood transfusion or hormone therapies are determined by the whims of your employer. But if you aren't lucky enough to have an employer, if you lack these so-called better skills to get one of the finite number of better jobs, you're just left behind. And so the people who profit from the commodification of our bodies have decided it is acceptable to shackle the well-being of children to whether or not their parents were lucky enough to have gone back in time 40 years, learned to code, and found a benevolent employer. Welcome to the hell world of America 2018. But it gets worse. It's much too early in the talk for things not to get worse. Because the costs of healthcare keep increasing. And they increase much, much faster than inflation. Now, these costs have been rising since we first began recording them. Part of that's for good reasons. More people are living longer with chronic conditions. Things like heart attacks, or trauma, or diabetes aren't the death sentences they were even a couple, two or three generations ago. So we spend more money taking care of more people longer, which is a great reason to spend money. But that's not really what's driving these healthcare costs. Most of these cost increases occur because hospital CEOs, equipment manufacturers, pharmaceutical companies, close personal friend Martin Shkreli, keep finding more and more ways to charge more money for the same services or rack up fees for unnecessary services and no private insurer can really stop them. Here's what checks out. In the US, the average inpatient procedure costs 40% more than the same procedure performed in the same patient when performed in France. Or look at uh, MRIs. MRIs are just big fancy computers that print money. And in the US, an MRI procedure costs five times more than the same machine performing the same procedure when performed in Australia. The costs are high because the prices are high. Or uh, most egregiously, let's consider the relationship between primary care and hospitals. Primary care is things like checkups, basic medications, the kind of familiar, intimate health care you get from your local family physician. It's high volume, it's low margin, and generally it's not super profitable. 
But now, conversely, a hospital gets paid an average of $2,000 a night for an inpatient stay. So if you're a hospital CEO, it just makes a hell of a lot more sense to push folks into inpatient admission instead of losing your money and wasting your time letting the cheap primary care outside the hospital. We witnessed this thing called Romer's Law, in which hospitals will change their admission policies to guarantee that every hospital bed that is built is filled regardless of actual need in the community. Now, that means diseases will be caught late if they're caught at all, and people will get sicker and sicker and thus more and more expensive to treat, but so long as someone's footing the bill, the hospital's still getting paid, and the hospital's specialists are still getting paid. Now, what's the result of that? Well, right now, 58 million Americans don't have access to primary care at all. So, as you can see, there are two fundamental truths to American healthcare. One, if you're a payer, like an insurance company, it's just not profitable to insure people who are sick. Two, if you're a provider, like a hospital, it is extremely profitable to charge sick people as much as possible, as late as possible, as long as somebody's footing the bill. So we've built upon these jagged rocks, this loathsome church of American healthcare, in which the question of who gets to receive care and when is determined by private property. scares the bejesus out of everybody involved, particularly insurers, right? Insurers are finding ways to not pay these rising costs. Sometimes that means just refusing to pay for claims. It's probably happened to you or someone that you love. Before the Affordable Care Act, it meant that insurers would just refuse to cover people who were or who were likely to get sick. You know the phrase, pre-existing conditions. But it's still not enough to claw costs down. So we all got together, everybody in America, back in the 1970s, and invented the idea of consumer-driven healthcare. Now, Consumer-driven healthcare is the idea that you should make consumers, which is just a libertarian way of saying people, pay more for the costs of their own healthcare. Because once people unhook their own costs and their deductibles and their co-pays increase every year, they'll turn them into smart shoppers somehow. And through the power of the free market or whatever, they'll shop around and not get unnecessary or too expensive care. They'll find the cheapest ER in town if they hit by a car. They'll, like, yelp their surgeons. And all of this somehow will drive prices down. That's the way we just internalize the language of the oppressor. And all this builds an unambitious and honestly pretty lonely worldview of what healthcare is and what healthcare can and should be. It treats being sick or being poor or being able to get pregnant as a character flaw. And that means if you get hit by a car or you give birth to a premature child or you have a heart attack, you're on the hook for your own costs. And if we determine that yours is the wrong kind of suffering, and these costs force you into a lifetime of crushing debt or medical bankruptcy, so that a hospital, a pharma company, or your insurer can turn a profit, well, tough. It's your responsibility. Healthcare is a matter of personal accountability. That's the brakes. Now, this market ideology of consumer-driven healthcare only serves people who seek to extract profit from our bodies. What's worse than that is it doesn't even work. Because people who are forced to pay healthcare costs they can't afford just don't seek healthcare. They don't seek primary care. They don't seek preventive care. They ignore that rash. Try not to look at that tumor. Think away that chest pain. Because we demand they bear the burden of health care costs they can't afford, they just watch their bodies turn to time bombs until they have a heart attack at their jobs and leave their kids behind. Well, that sucks. What do you do? How do you square the rampant increase of health care costs with the fact that insuring sick people just isn't profitable? Well, if you're the Democrats, you can collaborate with the Heritage Foundation to offer us the Affordable Care Act, which is, at its core, the massive subsidization of private industry with public money. The ACA's a big bargain, a big plaintive whale. Please, 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 how many billions of dollars do we gotta give you so you stop taking sick people off their insurance plans? 
Now, the ACA, of course, had its successes first and foremost among them, the expansion of Medicaid. In places where Medicaid was expanded, we saw a 6.1% reduction in the mortality rate. That's 11.1% among communities of color. We understand why. These are folks that have been systematically, if not violently, denied access to health care in the first place. So even the relatively meager expansion of Medicaid does a hell of a lot to help folks get essential care when they need it. But it's not enough. Because at the end of the day, costs keep increasing, quality of care stagnates or worsens for the most vulnerable among us, and 31 billion people are still uninsured. The ACA has failed in its pursuit of health justice. And there are consequences for that failure. Because among so-called developed countries, it is America that is the most dangerous place to be sick. Among peer countries, America is the most dangerous place to be black. It is the most dangerous place to be pregnant, with the highest maternal mortality rate of any first world country, of which 60% are entirely clinically preventable. America is the most dangerous place to be a child, the most dangerous place to be a woman, the most dangerous place to be gay, the most dangerous place to be trans, the most dangerous place to be old, and one of the most dangerous places to be disabled. Last year, life expectancy at birth fell for the first time in almost 30 years by a tenth of a year. Across the four million people born last year, that's a theft of 400,000 years. But a funny thing happens when you look at the data more closely, and you know precisely what I'm going to say, it is woven into the American fabric. When you look at the data more closely, you understand all this danger only exists if you're poor. Because rich people are all but exempted from these problems. Men born in the wealthiest fifth of Americans get to live 15 years longer than men born in the poorest fifth. Among women, that gap is 10 years. America has refused to recognize the essential dignity of being human. And in this refusal, it has caused mass suffering. This is an act of war. This is the terrible secret of American health care. This is the fundamental American illness. They are killing us and robbing our corpses to foot the bill. Now this big, stupid, multi-payer, profit-driven, Rube Goldberg machine of American healthcare is failing us today and left unchecked will collapse tomorrow. That is incontrovertible. It will collapse. So we demand something different. We demand a federal, universal, single-payer. Yeah, hell yeah. Single-payer is ultimately a pretty simple concept. Instead of having a bunch of private insurers with a bunch of fragmented customer bases, each seeking to pass the buck and avoid taking care of unprofitable sick people, we have one publicly owned, publicly funded insurer, a single payer, with a legislated mandate to cover in full all care for all people. Now that phrase, all care for all people, is important. We don't want Medicare as it exists today, with carve-outs for private companies, cost-sharing, deductibles, no out-of-pocket limit. No, we want an improved Medicare that guarantees comprehensive coverage, including medical, vision, dental, and long-term care for all people in America, including non-citizens, that is free at the point of service with no cost-sharing. Oh, yeah. yeah. No longer will someone needing help be bound by Byzantine provider networks, for there's only one network, Medicare's. No longer must you decide between food and medicine because the medicine is paid for. No longer will your care be decided by who your insurer is because the insurer is Medicare. 
Everybody benefits when accessing care is free and easy. Delivering care is complicated, right? Bodies are big bags of unknowable goo and they hurt constantly, and making them suffer less is complicated. Being a doctor, being a nurse, being, that's all complicated work. But paying for it isn't. Paying for it's pretty simple. People ask, how can we pay for this thing? Well, we're already paying for it. We're just forced to spend that money really stupidly. Right now, American public money pays for two-thirds of all healthcare costs in the U.S. Half of that two-thirds is uh, actual Medicare, Medicaid, or VA spending. Other half of that two-thirds is government subsidies to private companies. The remaining third is out-of-pocket costs, a kind of tax you pay to private insurers in the form of premiums, deductibles, and co-pays. America is already spending the money required to fund single-payer. The insurance industry is just incompetent and unable to pay its fair share, so it passes the costs more and more every year back to you. And so the goal is to liberate all people from medical costs and reallocate our spending to take care of everybody long-term. Part of the reason costs are so high is because private insurers with their small customer bases are just disadvantaged when negotiating with hospitals. But right now, Medicare negotiates about 44 million people nationwide, so they get better prices. And you scale that idea up by negotiating on behalf of 300 million people, Medicare can set fair prices for care while compensating providers justly. Even before that happens, we free up all the money associated with profit-seeking and administrative costs in the private insurance market. This optimization, in their terms, this innovation, frees up, in a conservative estimate, an additional $370 billion a year. That's a hard B, billion. That's a big chunk of change. So what do we do with it? We reinvest it to improve everyone's standard of living. We build or reopen primary care clinics in rural areas. We fund community health centers in poor neighborhoods. And most importantly, we return the money to the people who do the work. Take, for example, uh, home health aides. Y'all know home health aides? Ever have home health aides? Ever have a sick parent, a sick friend, sick kid? A person can receive care in the hospital, but again, that's about $2,000 per, per night. Oftentimes, if a person has less urgent medical needs, they can receive it at home. And for a lot of folks, home's a nicer place to be. It's where the internet lives, it's where your dog lives, hopefully someone you love lives there. So people can receive more humane care, and it costs an average of $150 per visit. So everybody wins. More humane care, that's cheaper. Uh, well, everybody wins except for home health aides themselves, because nationwide, for this essential care, they're paid an average of only $11 an hour. So we can allocate this money to do what the private market refuses to do, which is pay fair wages for essential care that helps everyone. Let me give you another example. Yeah, hell yeah. Let me give you another example. I visited a, a hospital in Little Rock, Arkansas. Little Rock is one of the diabetes capitals of the U.S. And you leave diabetes alone too long enough, it turns into things like uh, cardiac, heart attacks. So people from all around the county came to this hospital to seek care for cardiac. Over a quarter of them will be back in the hospital within a couple of weeks. Now, that's obviously not good. And so, this hospital, which was getting penalized by Medicare for having a high readmission rate, decided to try to bring those rates down. Now, who do you think affects readmission rates after a heart attack? Is it the cardiologist? Is it the surgeon? Is it the pacemaker itself? Maybe it's the uh, $20,000 data package so nerds can monitor pacemaker metrics. No, those are just the folks that get the bill the most. This hospital instead invested in social workers and nurses to take in patients after heart surgery and to guide them toward Medicare-sponsored free uh, social exercise and cooking classes three times a week. And the readmission rate fell from 26% to 4%. You see, it's non-diagnostic extra-clinical care. It is compassionate labor, which really came to the rescue. 
social workers, patient advocates, nurses. These are the folks chronically under-recognized and undervalued and are the primary drivers making a difference in population health. These are basic ideas. These are very simple demands. We understand the social forces that make folks healthy, and we understand the structural ones that make them sick. And in the face of this great knowledge that population health is structural and social, knowledge we've had for literally decades, if not centuries, capitalism's response is to blame population illness on an aggregate of atomized individual choices and then package them as healthy lifestyle commodities on apps and cookbooks and step trackers. But despite what app companies insist, there are no apps that bring about better health. A how to survive on $4 a meal cookbook doesn't do anything for folks that only have $4, if that, per meal. Programs that penalize you for going to the ED at the wrong time don't do shit to make you healthier outside the hospital. But in the multi-payer private model, nobody is investing in population health, and nobody's investing in compassionate labor. Nobody is paying these people fairly, and they never will be. Because right now, your private insurer only bears the cost of you receiving care while they're insuring because you're going to change insurers in the future and, God permitting, eventually go on Medicare, they feel no pressure to provide you with care that keeps you healthy or makes you healthier in the future. Let me put it another way. You know that if your window at home gets broken, the weather gets in. And if the weather gets in, you get sick or your kid gets sick. And if you get sick or if your kid gets sick, you got to go to the doctor. And if the local clinic was shut down or it's booked solid, you got to go to the hospital. And if the hospital's far away or you don't have a car, you gotta take the bus. And in a lot of parts of the US, if you gotta take the bus, you gotta spend all fucking day dealing with the bus system. And if you gotta spend all day dealing with the bus, you can't go to work. And if you can't go to work, you can't earn enough money to afford to fix the window in the first place. And so the problem is not to fork over a pile of cash every time you go to the hospital. The answer begins with giving folks what they need to fix the goddamn window. But there are no private actors in the American model who will consider bearing responsibility for these problems on their own. The insurance industry is incapable of addressing the foundational problems of healthcare, of fixing broken windows, of reopening the 18 rural hospitals that have closed in Texas in the past five years, of repairing the PVC septic systems that have ruptured in rural South Carolina and brought hookworm back to the state in the exact same way that a billionaire is incapable of lessening income inequality or a cop is incapable of shrinking the prison industrial complex. They cannot fix this injustice because they've been constructed by and within this injustice. They cannot solve these problems because they existentially cannot conceive of them as problems in the first place. But we do. We can. And so it makes perfect sense that the same actor who suffers when folks don't do care which is all of us, united against suffering, represented by our federal government, should be the actor that pays for that care in the first place. Because once the federal actor bears the costs of providing care, and the risks and costs of what happens when care is not provided, once we force it to confront the rampant suffering of all its people, it can finally be used as a tool for realizing health justice. If your people are suffering because they don't have a place to live, or where they live is unsafe, there's water in the walls, there's mold in the ceiling, it's flammable, I'm thinking of the Grenfell Towers in the UK or ghost ship back home in Oakland, then housing is healthcare. And you build free, safe housing to bring healthcare costs down. If people are suffering because they don't have access to healthy food to eat, because it's not profitable to sell a poor person vegetables, and so they're getting diabetes or comorbidities like cardiac failure, then Food 
is health care. And you must provide people with free or affordable food options and the time, space, and materials with which to prepare them. That's how you bring health care costs down. If your people are suffering because they don't have access to needle exchange programs, therapy, or counseling, then rehabilitation is healthcare. And not our current myopic end-of-life palliative care focused version of rehabilitation, but the full social structures required to help people handle substance use or perhaps not fall prey to it in the first place. That's how you bring healthcare costs down. Because single payer is not the goal. Single payer is just a very good tool. Health Justice is the goal. And when we fight for health justice, we all fight side by side because economic justice is health justice. Environmental justice is health justice. Reproductive justice for those who want to reproduce and those who don't, that's health justice. And justice for black lives, justice for brown lives, justice for trans lives, justice for lives of immigrants and the well-being of all people, regardless of age, gender, race, or creed, that is health justice. We have inherited... We have inherited a world in which your permission to receive healthcare, capitals, allowance, you can be safe in your own goddamn body, is dependent upon how much a corporation can extract a profit from you. And thus, we have permitted in our country utter desolation. Without our consent, we have been forced to participate in the condemnation, criminalization, and abandonment of people in need. People with disabilities got to spend tens of hours a week pleading with insurance companies for a chance to maybe go on a waiting list to receive the care they need if they're lucky. The unlucky ones gotta plead with Medicaid or Social Security to maybe consider compensating their partners, friends, or parents a whopping thousand dollars a month for taking care of them full time. Elsewhere across America, we have the opioid epidemic, an epidemic whose vector is capitalism itself, originally manufactured as a patent extension ploy with a massive marketing campaign that now kills 180 people a day. And those it doesn't kill are written off as criminals, the untouchables, because only criminals use needle drugs, and they're left to rot as their children cry their names. People who suffer from chronic pain are pushed to the side and ignored. In life, it is poor and uninsured people who are used to test the drugs that are then turned around and sold to the wealthy and insured, and that servitude continues in death because it is the organs of the poor that are ripped and sold to the wealthy as transplants. There is no end to the body horror of capitalism. There is no line too far for the commodification of the body. America has cheered the privatized slashing and burning of social structures and then has the audacity to punish people for suffering. People, people are in need. We waste time, effort, and money means testing, separating the worthy from the unworthy among those who need help and then stigmatizing them instead of guaranteeing the basic decency of health equity. This is cyclical. This has happened forever, and it will continue to happen so long as we tolerate, even in whispers, the idea that the body is a commodity. And for systematically marginalized people, sick people, homeless people, people battling addiction, people with disabilities, poor people, pregnant people, trans people, women, and people of color, well, there's no way for the medical-industrial complex to find value in their bodies. This is America, and there's always the private prison system ready to receive them for profit. And so single-payer is not the revolution. It is our first counterattack in a war that is already waged against us, by which subsequent counterattacks are made possible. 
Single payer is not only the only reasonable method of controlling healthcare costs while guaranteeing universal care. It is a tool by which we force ourselves and force the state to reckon with the racist, sexist, classist, and ableist provision of care in this country and to begin to strive toward relief and articulation of health justice. And so we have an obligation. We stand on the shoulders of hundreds of thousands of nurses, of tens of thousands of doctors, of organizations like ADAPT, and we must build the popular movement which demands single-payer from our government and which demands health justice in our nation. Now, realistically, you and I together can bellow to the stars and demand single-payer morning, noon, and night from now till 2020, and that's good, and I will do that, I hope you do that too, but it will not provide material relief to people who suffer now. Luckily for us, this is not an either-or proposition. We have an obligation to ourselves and those whom we love, now and in the future, to be good neighbors, to be good socialists. We must extend the basic decency of showing up, going to folks around us, listening, asking questions, listening again, finding common ground, listening once more, and then putting our shoulders to the wheel. We must identify what battles we can win, and then win them. We must fight for a continuous spectrum of demands aimed towards health justice. And unlike liberal policy tweak incrementalism, our successes must offer material and redistributive benefits to people who suffer now. And the ways folks have taken on this fight across the country are many. Uh, in, San in San Francisco, they just, they just won Prop F, right to counsel. In Cincinnati, eight socialists won a needle exchange, the first in the region. In Maine, the Maine People's Alliance built off a minimum wage increase campaign to win Medicaid expansion at the ballot box. In West Virginia, the wildcat strikes foregrounded insurance costs. In Louisville, Indianapolis, and Austin, they're fighting for safe housing and safe transit. And then back home in Texas, they're fighting for paid sick leave. In fact, the initial paid sick leave drive in San Antonio turned out 144,000 signatures, which is by far the largest popular movement San Antonio in years, if not decades. I don't know what the revolution looks like, but I know it will require massive popular mobilization, like what we saw in San Antonio, like what we saw in San Francisco, like what we just saw in the Bronx. Because if we give people something material, they will fight to get it. They will fight to keep it. If we fight with folks today, they will fight with us tomorrow. We build solidarity so we can build power. And through that power, through that massive mobilization, this is a fight we will win. The tide of history is in our favor. Right now, Medicare at all pulls at 64% in favor nationwide. This is not a radical proposition among the folks it affects. We are simply discussing a basic principle of fairness, right? Because we are all fashioned from a formless and shapeless place. We've all been thrust through the maw and born into a world that is arbitrary and unequal in its allocation of suffering. And yet, instead of affording each other the basic dignities of being human, we have developed this bizarre system of American health in which one's suffering is one's responsibility, in which empathy is vestigial and unnecessary. We have atomized suffering and, in turn, assigned blame for suffering to the people who suffered. And I've seen such naked suffering inflicted in my name. I've seen families torn apart by the unrepentant, unyielding bloodlust of capitalism. I have seen people torn limb from limb in the service of seeking profit. I have seen this dehumanizing machine all at once, and I have felt despair. For me, it is heinous to be an American, to be complicit through my own simple existence in my only and horrible home in the mass immiseration and annihilation of those against whom the whole rotten weight of the world is stacked. And this is intolerable to me. And so I say, enough.
Not in my name may this America persist. May we root ourselves not in fear, but in love and fury. Love for those who suffer around us, and from that love, may we cultivate the specific fury by which this cruel machine is destroyed by our hands. My friends, single-payer is moral. Single-payer is necessary. And single-payer is achievable. Solidarity now, solidarity forever. Thank you. All right. Hey, let's give it up for Tim Faust again. Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not even sure how to follow that up. Um, so really quickly, uh, <laughs> that was a beautiful speech, Tim. Thank you. Um, there was a point that, it, throughout there that I really liked that this is the, this is not the, 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 the start of the revolution, but this is a counterpoint to the revolution. These, this is like the quintessential issue facing American workers, facing Americans today, which is why we need to be able to go out and uh, to win this issue. Um, so Portland DSA, I'm just going to quickly throw an ask out there. Portland DSA, we are going to be out canvassing for this issue. We're going to continue to canvass for this issue. The next uh, time that we're going to be canvassing is August 18th. Um, we'll be meeting up at the DSA office, and then we'll be going out um, into the Kenton area to go canvass and talk to our neighbors about this issue. Um, as you know, Tim put, the only way in which we're going to win this issue is if we go out and you know have conversations with folks about this. The insurance companies are not going to fucking let us have this. They're going to continue to throw dollar after dollar after dollar at our legislators to try and prevent us from getting to this system. The way in which we build power around this is by building power in people, by going out, by listening to them, listening to their stories, sharing stories of our own, um, and then building power and asking them to join us in this movement. Um, so that, that's the ask. Come out August 18th. We'll be meeting at the DSA office. Come canvas. Um, and if you come out and canvas and decide it's something that you really love and enjoy, like, I would love to give you the tools to be able to host your own canvas. Because ultimately, if we want to have the most amount of conversations uh, with, our, with our neighbors and with our community members, the only way in which we're going to do this is if we exponentially grow it. Everybody in this room could come out and canvas for one day, but if everybody out in this room got five of their friends that are not in this room and took them out and canvas, we would have that many more conversations. Um, so again, uh, thank you, Tim Faust. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll do uh, Q&A. But thank you again. Do-do-do-do-do-do-do. Okay. All right. Okay. All right, All right. everybody. All right. Uh, so we're going to get started with this uh, questions and answers. Um, uh, just a quick reminder for everybody, uh, we are there's some Portland DSA shirts if you're interested in that. There's also a bucket up here for donations, which we'll make a pass around uh, as we're going through. Uh, we, you know, we, we rent this space. They, they give us a good deal on it. We're also uh, trying to raise some money for Tim uh, for his West Coast tour trip and, and helping accommodate some of his expenses as well. Um, Sorry, I'm not talking loud enough. Uh, and uh, Keith here will be walking around and... Keith here will be walking around passing the microphone for uh, taking questions and I'll be trying to take a progressive stack as best I can. 
Um, but with that, yeah, let's open it up for questions. Who's got cues? I'd love to A some. Hello. Hello. Oh, that's pretty loud. Uh, there's, I guess there's been some debate about using the term single payer versus using the term Medicare for all. And I think I know you're kind of in the single payer camp and I understand why. And I think, I guess DSA nationally chose to go with Medicare for all probably based on polling or whatever, but could you just speak on, on that kind of? Oh yeah, the, the, the nomenclature? Of yeah, the... like which one do you think, when canvassing maybe, or which, which do you think we should use more? Um, when you're talking to someone, kind of sauce it out. Mention Medicare and then explain, but improve Medicare, right? You've got more than like literally one word to get the point across. I use single payer because it's more precise and uh, I'm a, a nerd. Uh, but people generally, like among all insurers, Medicare is one of the highest satisfaction rates. I think it, is, I think it has the highest satisfaction rate of any federal program. Um, so if people are, you know, the question comes up when somebody uses Medicare who doesn't have their needs met. You know, how do you talk to them? Which is why uh, improved Medicare for all is good nomenclature. But generally, the phrase Medicare for all polls pretty well. Um, there's a whole lot of, you know, like Center for American Progress, Medicare extras for all, or like Medicare Advantage for alls, and those are all a big little horseshit. Um, but when you're talking to somebody, like, suss it out. Figure out, figure out what, what they're familiar with. If maybe if, if they're an elderly person, explain improved Medicare for all. If they're a person who's not in a federal program, maybe say Medicare for all. But uh, I don't know. You've got a, a, a little more time uh, to, to suss somebody out and kind of ID the right nomenclature when, when you're talking to them. Um, you had mentioned that you did some work in Maine, and um, I went to school in Maine. I lived there about a decade ago, and I remember at that time they had the ill-fated um, Dirigo program. I don't know if you remember that. It was uh, so you may not know, but it was it was supposed to be with the goal of it, it was sort of in much the same way that Cover Oregon ended up being an epic fail. It was uh, supposed to be a partnership between the state and Anthem Blue Cross Blue Shield, who basically had a monopoly on private insurance in Maine. Um, it helped a few people, like the ACA, it helped a few people, but fell very, very short of its goals, and it was set up to fail. So I was wondering if you were familiar with that program. Or what's, it, what's it called? It was called Dirigo, which I believe was a Latin term. I believe it was the um, state motto of Maine. All right, I'll look that up. I only know Latin from the Latin Mass. Okay, Again, okay. I think it was so ill-fated. It's probably kind of obscure at this point. We can we can talk about that because fundamentally, whenever you build a healthcare solution that involves subsidizing private companies, not kick folks off, it sucks. Let me give you an example. Uh, there's this idea that maybe the U.S. could do the German model or the the Dutch model, in which there's multiple private payers that are tightly regulated. Uh, well, those don't make sense in the U.S. One, the German approach to regulating uh, private companies is way different than the U.S.'s. I think every board of directors has massive union representation and a, a federal payer there. Plus, these German insurers were set up 120 years ago. It's not a, it's not a model that works in the U.S. The uh, Dutch model, which is what the ACA was based off of, has 22% of the population unable to access care because they're not wealthy enough. It's got massive coverage problems. But here's a really good example. Uh, uh, South Africa is a country which has a federal single-payer kind of thing available. But if you're wealthy, you can take your money out of that risk pool and put it into the private network. There's all kinds of private hospitals and private doctors, people that deal only with private insurance. And here's the result. Uh, uh, 
Only 14% of people are in that private network, and they spend 46% of all healthcare dollars, and they have much better outcomes. The OECD, which is not a very, like, aggressive or, or like, bullish organization, called it a virtual reenaction of apartheid in healthcare financing. Anytime you permit a, a private payer, a private company, a private insurer, a chance to kind of, like, squirrel off some of the risk pool and spend it, people suffer, and it all, uh, it all goes to private gain. Australia had a similar example. Australia organizes their care on five tiers. Tier one's things you gotta have right now, like cardiac failure. Tier five are things like uh, hair plugs, which are important, but you know, you're not gonna die if you have to wait a little bit. And they found that in tier three, which is orthopedic surgeries, they had wait times that were longer than what the population wanted. So the, uh, Australia had its own little tea party insurrection in the mid-aughts, and they focused on this, this tier three level of care. Oh, well clearly the federal option isn't good enough to take care of this, let's privatize it. So they permitted privatization of uh, uh, orthopedic care, knee replacements, hip replacements, that kind of thing. So they got all these private hospitals that would take private money to do private care, and it turns out the outcomes were worse, the wait time was longer, and it was more expensive. The one example we have of anywhere in the, uh, in, in the world, uh, like say, the continual example we have in every country in the world is that when you fragment the risk pool, when you let private companies get involved in trying to make a profit uh, off of insurance, people suffer. There's a push to, to there's a, a push to bring it to bring it all back in. They realize it's a failure of a program. But the thing happened that happens in the UK and everywhere, where you take a federal program, you defund it or you kick it, and then it does, it works it works less well. So you blame it for working less well and take money away. They're still kind of like in the middle of like their like. Tea Party insurrection and like the, the, the fight back for it, but everybody understands this thing has fundamentally failed and costs uh, haven't increased. I don't know where the current status of, of orthopedic placement is right now. I should find out though. As Medicare for All becomes more popular, we're seeing more politicians start to kind of jump on the bandwagon, and I know that there's been a lot of insidious wording tossed around like access to health care mm -hmm. and some of the wording on Twitter about how healthcare shouldn't be political, and I wondered if you could talk to that a little bit for us. I mean, that's the kind of thing you get to say when you're not at risk, right? Fundamentally, you can build a, 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 uh, a healthcare solution that is just fine for folks that are wealthy and not very sick, and they'll be fine in that program. It's just like they're doing okay in this one. And that's clearly insufficient because healthcare is extraordinarily political. There's a, there's a trend in medical schools uh, where medical schools encourage med students to think of their work as inherently apolitical, that providing medicine is not political. But when there's, a, there's also a, a, a parallel concept uh, called financial toxicity, which is the idea that medical debt or being in debt has a physiological consequence, right? Which, which is true. And so all of a sudden, you've got doctors that have to choose between giving a person the care they need, which puts them into debt, or giving a person a, uh, giving a, person a lesser standard of care so they can uh, afford it. And either way, they are being coerced into harming their patients. It's an inherently political act. I think the people that, there's this idea, so like you're gonna have your Medicare extras, your Medicare advantages for all, and those are all just ways to carve out private profit. I could walk through them, I should walk through them. Um, there's this idea of a, a, a Medicare extra for all in which um, we can allocate some of this public money towards like a private insurer for a couple of years. But then the private insurer's only job is to appeal only to people that are wealthy or not sick, to find ways to adverse select against having to spend money on people who are sick. Here's how they do that, here's two examples. Um, one, you know, this is a, there's a lawsuit in Florida right now about a, uh, an insurer. So HIV AIDS is a syndrome which can be treated through a cocktail of some quantity of what, 16 or 17 drugs. 
Um, and so there's an insurer in Florida that looked at these, at these drug combinations and decided to make uh, one of them for most possible cocktails not covered under their plan or very, very expensive. Therefore, folks who have HIV AIDS look at their formulary and say, oh, I can't go into that one, and therefore the insurer is spared from having to take care of, of, of that sick person. Or you've got uh, things like narrow networks. San Antonio is a city that has two highways, two loops, and inside in the southwest quadrant in the uh, narrower loop, you have a massive food desert and an extraordinarily high diabetes rate. Now, San Antonio has three endocrinology centers, uh, two in wealthy uh, uh, neighborhoods, one white, one Hispanic, and then one in that like rougher uh, diabetic neighborhood. And every insurer only takes, uh, only accepts care from those uh, two folks that live in the wealthier neighborhood. So therefore, if you live in like the sicker part of town where you are sick, you are uh, encouraged basically through lack of network construction to uh, enroll in that plan. It's just a way that the private insurers kind of uh, shift the odds to avoid getting sick people so that it's uh, pushed back onto the, the federal payer to soak. These things fragment uh, the risk pool, they harm people, and they're open. then the insurer uses things like apps or step trackers or Amazon reward cards to uh, keep people who aren't sick uh, happy until they are sick and they're pushed off and couldn't do their plans. All the, that's the only purpose of, of, of like these Medicare extras. Medicare Advantage is a program where we permit um, private insurance companies to administer Medicare programs. But that's kind of rough because people on Medicare often have high health costs, and if we had to just take them in, it'd be way too expensive for an insurer to profit. So uh, the federal government has a program by which if a Medicare Advantage insurer has a person with diabetes or emphysema or whatever, the federal government will pay that insurer a bonus to keep that person on board which turns into kind of like a cash for diagnosis procedure. So you have hospitals that, like Montefiore in New York, that build little assembly lines. And you can pump through all your patients, all your customers, or even do it on the phone, and they will find every possible diagnosis they can give that person. In Minnesota, the CFO, I think of Athena Health, uh, copped, uh, became a whistleblower and talked to the Fed saying they were getting an extra $10 billion a year on overdiagnosing or upcharging their own patients. No matter where you turn, you cannot find a private insurer doing a good thing for the right reasons. They only exist to find ways to ferret money out of the federal government and hold sick people hostage as a consequence. So yes, these choices are inherently political. Healthcare is inherently political because many people aren't afforded healthcare. And the determination of who gets to suffer, who suffers matters is fundamentally a question of power, and power leads politics. You don't got to clap. So uh, one thing that I've heard from some comrades on the left, and it's not super common, um, but their concern is that uh, the the way to attack, to tackle healthcare policy in the United States is not from the buyer side with a single payer or Medicare for all program, but rather to address the cost side. Um, and maybe if we're being generous, that looks like, you know, the, the bad scenario that could happen is uh, that there's like this, you know, single payer apparatus that then is collaborating with, um, with providers rather than working in the interests of, of taxpayers and of, of people. Um, so I, I guess I was just wondering what your initial take was off of that and what, what your kind of like rebuttal or initial response to those concerns is. Okay. A um, couple of things. One, if you want to address costs, you can do it through the buyer side, the payer side, right? If a payer, if a payer serves everybody, if it's Medicare for all, it basically has unilateral negotiating power on setting prices. The way it works now is Medicare says, hey, for condition X, 
diagnosis Y, procedure Z, we will pay you X thousand dollars with some adjustments. Hospitals can take it or leave it. And most hospitals take it because losing out on those 44 million people is something they can't afford to do. Hospitals then turn around and uh, they receive lower rates for Medicaid because that's a, a thing Medicaid can do. And then they increase the cost between three and seven times and charge that to private insurers. And private insurers who need those hospitals much more than the hospitals need them can't do beans about it. Um, like the, the, the payer has a lot of ability to, to affect costs and affect outcomes. There is a concern, like it is entirely warranted over to be skeptical of the state, right? The state has perpetuated, if not like amplified, the mass miserization of vulnerable people. But what we have right now is we just kind of put all that accountability, we put all this decision-making power in private companies. And no matter how much they suck, you can't vote the Blue Cross guy out of office. You can't like yank the Kaiser of Kaiser out of his comfortable like CEO chair or whatever. There's no democratic accountability. And so like we are attempting to build a program which is accountable to the popular movement, the powerful movement that demanded it, right? Never trust an elected, never trust a federal official as far as you can throw them. Um, but that's why the goal is to build a problem that has accountability. But there are things a payer, like uh, the, the payer is inherently antagonistic, unless there's like, like a cartel collusion going on, which happens a little bit in Medicare, I could talk about that. Like the payer and the provider are inherently antagonistic on crisis and outcomes. Here's a good example of that. Appalachian, Maryland is a de facto single payer province. That single payer is Medicaid. Appalachian, Maryland is a part of the US. We've drained of all its resources, all of its capital, all of its labor, and then like punished for, you know, about 40 years. Uh, and so there's not a lot of employer-sponsored insurance in Western Maryland. Uh, there's a lot of folks in Medicaid. And uh, you have happening in Maryland what's been happening across the entire US at different rates um, for the past 40 years, where local clinics dry up or are aggregated into hospitals and then canceled because they want to have people go to the hospital for higher money. Um, primary care providers retire and can't be replaced or they're absorbed to get into that hospital. So you have one hospital, which is becoming the primary site of service for everybody in, in, in that area, and costs are skyrocketing because folks have to go farther to the hospital when they're sick. Uh, and that was making Medicaid, which is a combination state and federally funded program uh, really suffering. Maryland couldn't afford it. So Maryland's Medicaid commissioner, a woman named Shannon McMahon, no relation to the WWE McMahons, uh, 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 had the same fighting spirit and decided to kind of like take it to the mat against this hospital group. And so she brokered a deal where Medicaid would pay this hospital group a flat fee per year, let's say $100 million or whatever, with some adjustments for inflation. And uh, they had to take everybody in. They could not turn any patients away. Go forth and see what happens. Well, now all of a sudden, all these costs of folks getting care too late or not being able to get care become costs on the hospital, right? If you can treat someone, for example, for stage zero cancer now and you don't, uh, the, the, the cost of providing stage four or stage five care is, is much, much higher. The hospital's on the hook. And so what do you think the hospital did? It began reopening rural care centers, began pushing doctors into the neighborhoods, began making care uh, uh, more accessible and, and easier to get earlier in life. And they ended up making a four to 6% profit the next year. Now, obviously, I don't care what hospital profit. I mean, they're doing horrible shit, and like, this is a consequence of that. But like, the payer has a lot of ability to kind of kick providers in line to, uh, um, to adjust cost structures. Does that kind of answer your question? Cool. So um, here, in, here in Oregon, we, the Democrats generally almost have a supermajority, House, Senate, kind of wavers in and around it. And earlier this year, they, there's been a longstanding effort to try and pass a state or, or amendment to the Oregon Constitution to make health care a right. It was, of course, scuttled by certain Democrats here. Uh, additionally, we do have what I'd say a pretty squared away senator in uh, Senator Merkley. And then you have Senator Wyden, too, who at least I heard him comment once on 
the notion that along the West Coast, California, Oregon, Washington, would have somehow the potential to form a compact around healthcare for all or universal healthcare of some sort with a partnership between the three states. And I remember listening somewhere to one of your podcasts in the past that you're, you were thinking that any individual state trying to attempt single-payer universal health care is very unlikely to work. What do you think is the potential for the West Coast or three states potentially doing that? I think that fundamentally people like Wyden uh, advocating for state-based solutions are just absolving themselves or abdicating their responsibility of fighting for the thing on the federal level, right? Fundamentally, state-based single-payer... Oh. I mean, hell yeah, they fucking suck. Uh, a state-based single-payer program and a federal single-payer program might have similar names, but they're very, very different, and different entities. I'll make it pretty brief. Um, states have been made inadequate to handle the problem of healthcare on their own. Uh, healthcare spending is counter-cyclical, right? Uh, if, if somebody loses their job or they're not working, they're more likely to get sick because stress makes you sick and more expensive than when they're employed. So if you're a state, your ability to raise funds is often tied to income or uh, job taxes. So all of a sudden, uh, when your costs go up and people get unemployed, you have less money coming in. Back in the 80s, uh, all but one state signed balanced budget amendments where they can't deficit spend. So all of a sudden, you've got less money coming in and higher costs, and you've either got to cut the health care program, cut education, cut infrastructure. If you're Wisconsin, you can cut all three. Um, and it, it, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's like a, a self-poisoning complex. Now, on the federal level, you don't have those problems. One, we sign blank checks for total war constantly. We have the money to do it. Two, the federal state can deficit spend. Even noted progressive luminaries like Alan Greenspan have admitted that uh, if Medicare or Social Security, wherever at stake, we can just spend, uh, spend it into existence. Not, not a simple program. These things aren't the same kinds of beasts. So when Wyden, when Pelosi, uh, when Schumer said that we should leave this thing to the states to figure out, they know that one, states can't pass these programs on their own. Also, there's a lot of like federal roadblocks to the state single payer. They're just abdicating the fight. And that means that when uh, state-based single-payer fails in Vermont or fails in Colorado, it lets these folks point at it and say, well, not worth fighting for on the federal level, which is utter horseshit. They're different programs. Um, as far as like a statewide like Concord, no, I don't, I don't, I don't think that works. Like, you would require a, uh, a legislative act to uh, exempt these things from ERISA, which is self-insured. Uh, it would require CMS, which is an executive branch office, to approve um, a reallotment of Medicare grants, which they won't do. That's Trump-controlled. And there's, there'd be a lawsuit at the Supreme Court. So I think there's so many obstacles in the way of, of, of state-based single-payer um, that it, it's, it is not a tenable or viable program. Uh, and uh, people like Wyden are just uh, washing their hands of trying to do something meaningful on the federal level. I wanted to follow up on, on Nick's question. And because, you know, right now, a lot of prices, the sort of baseline for them is set by a little committee in CMS, which is controlled by the high-priced specialists, right? And so part of our skewing towards late-stage expensive specialist care instead of, you know, health promotion and prevention and, you know, uh, you know basic, basic health to keep you from getting mm -hmm. sick, uh, it's because actually of a committee that's in the current Medicare system. So, is it time for our movement to start building a capacity to analyze that kind of thing and develop a project to hold them accountable, to change that when we get Medicare for All? Or are we just still really in an agitating and educational kind of phase, in which case I might make an argument for pursuing this thing. I, in fact, I do I work with Healthcare for All Oregon, that, that there's 
you know, a thing we're doing, organizing all around the state, that can go to promoting the, the federal level as well. But, but like, where are we in terms of agitation and education versus actually needing to have the capacity to hold the system accountable? Cool. I want to talk about that committee because it's cool as hell and it's awful. Uh, um, let me try to answer your question first. I think fundamentally our job is not to build a policy but to build a popular movement that demands uh, 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 an ideology, ideology of health justice for all people, right? If you invest too heavily in a candidate or a policy, at some point that candidate will fail. The policy will not pass. And what happens to your movement after that? How do you build a thing that endures? I think that building a movement that is based off a relatively simple concept, all care for all people, is how you build that mass popular mobilization. It is a material reform that affects people like imminently, physically, viscerally. Uh, and I think like our job as a movement is not to get Obviously, like specific policies make a big fucking difference. Right now, uh, Sanders' bill and Ellison's bill are both uh, uh, inadequate bills, and neither of them are good enough for the single barrier state uh, the program that we need. But getting, I think, in the when you're organizing a mass movement, when you're trying to win material gains, when you're trying to like win things locally and then and then, and then nationally, I think getting bogged down in like exactly how a policy thing works in for the purpose of, of, of mass organizing might turn people away. Right? Uh, um, single payer, like the idea that you were being exploited, and here's a way to remove that exploitation to lessen your suffering uh, resonates everywhere I've been. I've been in Trump County, I've been in rural Arkansas, I've been in rural Tennessee. Uh, everybody knows that uh, they're being exploited, they're being made to suffer, and offering them a, a relatively simple pathway towards relief, I think, mobilizes a lot of folks. Now, on the actual policy side, there's a lot of room to discuss cool and interesting things. Um, here's, I think, uh, uh, one thing that I think, uh, I think these become parallel fights. Right now, one of the reasons the costs are so high is because uh, CMS gives a lot of like executive authority and insight into how costs are set to the AMA's Rules Update Committee. The AMA, the American Medical Association, is fundamentally a cartel. Its first ever act, when it was first created after the Civil War, was to set price floors for people returning home from the Civil War. They, the first thing they did was, uh, was drive prices up. Right now, um, Medicare privileges the... AMA has a rules update committee in which they uh, offer equal representation to all kinds of providers. So they have one primary care provider and ten ophthalmologists to represent the ten kinds of ophthalmology. They have a committee that's fundamentally weighted towards uh, specialists. Uh, and so every year they, uh, they send out like a fucking Google survey to, I don't know, ten knee doctors and say, hey, what's up with knee surgery? And the, uh, the ten knee doctors say, well, you know, it turns out there's two kinds of knee surgery now. There's a, a really hard one, uh, happens half as often, should cost twice as much. And the normal one, you know, slash the price by half. On the face of it, that's revenue neutral, everything's fine. And so Medicare says, well, you guys are doctors, we trust you, they pass it. And then for the next year, every single hospital in the U.S. that does knee surgery only bills at the higher rate. It's, uh, it, it, the hospitals are designed to maximize the kinds of revenue they, they can extract from a payer. Another good example is the idea of physician extenders. Hospitals have a problem with their high-paid specialists, and they only have one of them, right? Uh, if you have a cardiologist or a heart surgeon, and that person can bill $10,000, if that person works 10 hours a day, you could only get $10,000 uh, uh, a day uh, for, from that surgeon. But what if you didn't have to? So uh, Deloitte Consulting, which is one of the major players in increasing medical costs, invented the idea of physician extenders, in which in a hospital setting, so long as that high-paid specialist is within like 20 miles or a phone call, can delegate up to four people at a time to perform surgery and then bill at the rate of the higher-paid person. 
So all of a sudden you've got four physician assistants or residents who are performing surgery and get to bill at the $10,000 rate of the card. Like there's, there, is a, there is rampant abuse and exploitation the entire way through in hospital billing. Um, I think a single payer that is democratically accountable, that is you know, held uh, uh, to the movement, uh, is forced to examine why these costs skyrocket and being, begin cutting it out. But I think there's another parallel fight, and that's if you are going to med school right now and you graduate and you look at physician salaries, the chart looks like this. You've got a couple of folks making hundos of millions, and then a bunch of folks like primary care providers who are making much, much less than that. You know, maybe sometimes, sometimes even less than six figs if, if they're in a rural area. If you go to med school, you're coming out with $300,000 $300, in debt. So you look at this chart and you say, well, shit, I gotta be a specialist. I gotta go into these things. I can't afford to go into primary care or rural care. I met a, a, a primary care provider, a really nice 67-year-old woman, said Lexington, Kentucky, who was afraid to retire because nobody can afford to move where she works and do her job. So I think a parallel fight that helps bring this down is the fight to make all medical training tuition-free or offered uh, tuition relief programs. Not just for not just for doctors, but for all healthcare providers, right? Healthcare is a service, like water pickup or trash uh, um, or electricity. And so we should treat people that want to do that service uh, accordingly. Right now, uh, I think four-fifths of people in med school come from the top income uh, quarter, right? We've built a world which only the children of doctors can afford to become doctors themselves. And of course, that, that leaves us open to massive exploitation and suffering. So I think they're, like, you're right. I, I think an accountable movement is forced to consider these things, but there are parallel fights to the fight for single payer that I think are, uh, can be realized. Like, the only, a single payer doesn't solve that problem in and of itself. It's a, it's a, it's a great tool, but it's a limited one. But I believe it offers us the leverage to begin jousting towards these uh, uh, bigger, more complex uh, problems. Yeah, I'm, I'm having fun. Um, where are going? You are. Hello. Hello. Um, I'm just wondering, are labor unions involved in this movement at this time, or are there efforts to bring them in? Yes, ma'am. Uh, she asked if, if, if labor unions are involved in this fight and efforts to bring them in. A couple of things. One, uh, a lot of the wildcat strikes we saw among teachers and other folks across the U.S. have like foregrounded insurance costs as a big reason for why they're fighting, right? Right now, a silver plan um, for a family, like employer given, like costs something like $7,600 a year in deductible and fewer than 40% of Americans have uh, 1000 bucks in the bank. Uh, people are, right now, if you are in a union, like your union fights for more expensive and worse insurance every single year, which takes up air and time you can spend agitating for better contracts, workplace safety, and more ambitious results. Um, so you're seeing a, 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 a unions get more involved in the fight. I talked to a union of, a, 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 I think, longshoremen, longshore, longshore people in, 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 in uh, Philadelphia recently, and I think there's, there, there's a growing understanding among unions that this is like a fight that really, like, unshackles them, lets them fight for more and bigger things. And even on top of that, like, folks that aren't unionized, I think if you've ever had a really shitty hourly job and you've had an abusive manager, you understand that that person has power over you, has power over your health, power over your kid's health. So it's harder to walk out of work or leave an abusive relation, situation or leave relationship because your health care is on the line. I think what single-payer does is let folks that aren't unionized have a whole lot more agency in fighting back against predatory and exploitative environments. There's this documentary called Fix It, which kind of goes in the circuit about single-payer, and it's a businessman, a benevolent businessman, discovering that single-payer is good for business, which I don't give a shit about. Um, 
If like a business owner saves some money through single payer, great, fantastic. I care about the person that is uh, forced to exist in a coercive or abusive work relationship to like pay for the healthcare for their kids. And so I think this is both in unionized and non-unionized labor. This is an essential fight. I think we're seeing more of that. I, uh, there's this um, guy, Mark Dudzik, who I think is in the National Federation of Labor, or one of the uh, big national labor committees, who's a, also a pretty aggressive single payer advocate. I'm talking to more and more union folks that understand this is a fight. Um, I, uh, I think this, there, there is a natural home, uh, a natural camaraderie, a natural allyship in this fight uh, among unions. Uh, just a uh, quick, well, once again, thanks for coming out and uh, talking to us and answering all our questions for this. Wow, this is very fun. Um, my question is, uh, I know several, I know multiple people here who are currently engaged in, say, private offices or, you know, in local um, healthcare operations. Any, um, any suggestions uh, for them to either to try to help things or maybe is it worth it for them just to, I don't know, openly sabotage or monkey wrench as much shit as possible? So I guess it, any 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 any, uh, any words of advice, positive or negative, for folks currently in, uh, employed in the industry right now, if you could. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, obviously, because I'm being filmed, I won't say sabotage your employer. Um, <laughs> I have a dog to feed. Um, I think I can offer maybe people who work that work in the industry a vision of a better world. Right now, if you work in insurance. Uh, or you work in a hospital, your job is often customer-facing, customer service, maybe you're a nurse who works in claims adjudication. Fundamentally, if you work on the insurance side, you receive a phone call from a person who is sick, and your job is to find the minimum amount of health care you're required to pay for that person. If you work in a hospital, you might work in a billing department, and your job is to kind of joust that, like your job is to maximize revenue for your hospital. But there are models of health care that offer, I think, a much more humane approach to your work and what it can do. I'm talking about one. It's a Medicaid clinic I like a lot, that I've mentioned before on some of my other stuff, called a Medical Legal Partnership. It comes out of Boston, because every now and again, in God's great design, a good thing comes from Boston. Uh, it is a Medicaid clinic, and here's how it works. Here's how it works. This is a real anecdote. A person comes to the clinic, and the person uh, is a Medicaid patient, and they say, hey, I need help. I've got my three-year-old kid here, and my three-year-old kid has real bad asthma, and I don't know what to do. And there's a social worker who intakes the patient, and that's important to have a single person do intake, especially in cases of things like domestic violence or trauma or assault, like having multiple folks constantly ask questions can be really, really bad for a patient's outcome. So you have one trained social worker who gently and thoroughly intakes the patient and says, oh, this, uh, this kid has asthma. This kid needs clinical care. And so they walk down one door in the building, and there's an RN or there's a doctor, and they give the kid albuterol, and that's great. That's not where it ends. Because the social worker knows there are all kinds of things that contribute to things like youth asthma. And the social worker says, well, what's your home like? And the patient says, I live in a slum in Boston. There's water in the ceiling, there's mold in the walls, I've got a slumlord, I can't do shit about it. It turns out you have a lot of civil and legal protections against things that make you sick, but you only have access to those protections if you can hire a lawyer, or if you've got the time, literacy, and like fluency to advocate it for, for yourself. Do you guys know uh, uh, Matthew Lesko? He was in public access TV in the, in the 90s. He wore a big Riddler suit. Um, free money from the government. His, like, his entire, I think he wears that thing like in public all the time. His entire John is finding ways the government is going to give you money that it owes you, that you deserve. His entire purpose was like finding all at the uh, you know, reservoirs of cash to which you are entitled and giving it to you. 
The social worker fills a similar role in this model. The social worker's job is to find all the protections you have for all the ways we can give you health and, and allocate it to you. So the social worker understands this is a thing that, that, uh, that they can help with, walks the person down one more door, and there's a lawyer in the office, and the lawyer says, we're going to sue your landlord. I'm mailing this letter right now, and within two months, what do you know? The water is, is out of the walls, and the, the mold's cleaned up. Right now, if you work in, this, in the healthcare industry, your job is to find the minimum amount of care required to give somebody. But you can invert that. We are, we are suddenly interested in investing in models that provide all these long-term benefits. Your job becomes not to limit care for people around you, but to be a Matthew Lesko kind of and find all the kinds of care, both short and long-term, to which a person is entitled. You can use your skill set to do good. Uh, which is really uh, compelling. If I could do my job for a single pair, uh, my computer job, I'd fucking do it right now. I'd run out of here and go do it. And, th th and then there are other models. There's the idea of the, uh, the, the patient advocate. Um, we understand that something like 80% of instances of malpractice occur not because of technical error, but because of cognitive error. It's not like a surgeon leaving a scalpel in a patient, whoops. It's a, 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 a physician or a resident uh, mistaking somebody who's like battling a substance use thing as being drug seeking or attention seeking. It's a person mistaking somebody who has like a, a severe liver problem as being just a drunk. It's more often than not an elderly person of color being pushed away because they just uh, uh, because they're incomprehensible or hysterical, who then comes back two weeks later with a ruptured appendix. These are cognitive errors that we all uh, that people like. Uh, absorb either through medical training or it's like the decadence of being an American and then inflict suffering upon people. We understand how, how to solve this. It's a model of a patient advocate. Right now, we have this idea that patients should be hyper-literate in their own conditions and able to kind of spar with doctors about it. You should Wikipedia or WebMD what's wrong with you and be able to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with your doctor and figure out what happens. We know you can't do that. If you are in pain or if your kid is in pain, you do whatever the doctor says because that's the doctor's job. You delegate the responsibility uh, to that person. But if you put somebody in the middle of that, if you put somebody who's from the area, who looks like the patients that the hospital serves, who advocates both as a compliment to the patient and kind of an antagonist against the doctor, you get better outcomes. A good example is this, uh, there was this wave of uh, a sensation around this idea of uh, transurethral ballooning that happened in the 70s and 80s and early 90s. This idea you could uh, insert a balloon into a urethra and shrink a, a swollen prostate. Uh, but it turned out that that thing had side effects like incontinence and impotence and was often like, because it was a thing available, doctors prescribed it, because they like prescribing things. Doctors like doing things to help their patients. But when you introduce an advocate into the model and you tell the patient, hey, we can do this thing and here are the side effects, we can watch and wait, or we can try a, a third option, patients overwhelmingly chose to watch and wait and see what happened. One, like less money was spent because surgery did not happen, and two, the patient finally had informed consent uh, in, 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 their own, uh, in their own care. Right now, uh, if, if you're a patient, you're given options you don't necessarily understand. Having a person in the room who helps you understand what you can do and pushes back against the doctor when the doctor rushes into judgment, like saves both a lot of money and is much, much more humane. But right now, nobody will invest in patient advocates. It's not profitable. A single payer is a tool by which we can consider investing in these kinds of social work that fundamentally drive differences in uh, long-term health and population health. So if you work in the industry, like, there is a light. Uh, there is a way to do what you do to help people around you. And I can't think of a way we get to that point without a federal single payer. Is that it? Thank you.